The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ruth 1, verses 14 through 17. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 2. We're going to actually be focusing on Ruth this week and next week, but we're going to start in the book of Judges. So Judges 2. So in 2005, the Professional Association of Teachers in Great Britain proposed a ban on the word fail. Teachers no longer be able to speak of failure in the classroom. They would be forced to speak, and here's the term they chose, about students' deferred success. Like, that's insane. I mean, how how does it even work? So if a student fails chemistry and never takes it again, how is their success deferred? I'm sure the, the thinking behind this proposal was noble, even though it's short-sighted, because anyone who's ever failed at something understands the pain and frustration of failure, whether it's an F on a term paper or a pink slip on a desk or a last-second loss on the field, it hurts to fail. It only hurts to fail, it hurts when someone else fails you. So our family, we like to watch the Olympics when it comes on every four years, and I remember a number of years ago, we were watching the Winter Olympics, and in the Winter Olympics, you always end up watching those sports. You're not even sure you understand what they are, like curling, like, I don't even know what's going on, why they're sweeping the ice. You watch it because just to hear those people yell, we, I don't know what they're yelling, but they're very intensely yelling, like those type of things. Well, we were watching speed skating, and I don't, I don't really know all the, I can sort of get the idea if you end up first, you win, so that I can follow along on that one. But we were watching a, the speed skating thing, and I, I remember it because uh, the speed skater, his name was Sven Kramer. He, he won the gold medal. This was his second gold in the Olympics. He won it very easily. But it, one of those things happened at the end of it where you know even as a viewer something's wrong because like, you see there's like sort of quiet and then everyone starts to huddle up and you're like, what's going on? And they announced that Sven had, he had made an illegal lane change near the end and so he was disqualified and so he didn't get the gold medal. But here's the worst part about it. He, the, the lane change didn't make any difference. He was so far ahead, it, it really didn't matter at all. And the only reason he made it was because his coach motioned him to make the lane change. Have you ever had someone fail you? Right? So together you would hope for something, you would plan for it, you'd work for it, you'd put in all this energy and investment, and they made a mistake, and as a result, you failed. This is where the book of Ruth begins. It begins with disappointment and failure, Three women are left alone and vulnerable because of the failure of others. Their hopes and dreams have been dashed, not really because of choices they made, but because of the choices of other people. If the book of Ruth were a movie, 
The opening scene would be a rainy day and the soundtrack would be minor key music. It'd be a little gloomy and depressing. It wouldn't make the cut on Hallmark. Like this would be the day where you, you get out of bed and you really just want to crawl back in bed and stay there. You don't want to go anywhere. It's just depressing. But what we discover in this short book is that God's grace is most often seen in times of failure. Like we tend to think that God's grace is most prominent in seasons like of sweeping success. But that's not the case. It's the moments of abject failure and hopelessness that God's grace shines most brightly. So we're going to look at chapter 1 of Ruth this morning in just a moment. And I want you to see that when all else fails, God's grace is enough. His grace is sufficient. It never comes up short. So the story of Ruth opens with a nation's failure. So in Ruth 1 verse 1, this is the opening phrase of the book. It says this, during the time of the judges. And so it's setting the story of Ruth within the larger story of the Old Testament. The time of the judges covers roughly 400 years of Hebrew history. So last week we left the story off with the nation of Israel. These are the descendants of Abraham. They, they've, they've made it through the wilderness. And they've just entered the land God had promised them. They had, they had defeated the nation of Jericho. Only Rahab and her family was spared. They begin to settle the land under the, under the leadership of Joshua. And so in Judges 2, we, we see a summary of, of what was happening in Israel during this time. Look at Judges 2, verse 6. Previously, when, this is sort of like on our last episode, previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. So they divided this land up among the families and tribes. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime. And during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua, they had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. So overall, when Joshua dies, life in Israel is pretty good. Now, To be fair, they did fail to fully follow through on what God commanded. God said, expel all of these nations from the land, and they didn't do that. They only did it in part. But this is is sort of a period of peace and prosperity. But it says as soon as Joshua and those who were with Joshua died, that generation, all of a sudden the problems begin. Because the following generation does not know God. See, the generation that had died had failed to, to do what God had said as far as imparting the teaching of the law to the, to the generations. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This Deuteronomy 6 says, and basically says, teach your children to love the Lord your God all the time. When you're standing, when you're sitting, when you're walking, when you're going, like, write it on the doorpost of your, of your house. Like, just put it everywhere so they get it. Well, they didn't. And so that generation fails to train their offspring to love the Lord with all their heart. And so now you have a generation of, of Israelites who they, they just simply don't follow the Lord. And this begins a, 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 a pattern which you find in the, the book of Judges, which just propels the story forward. It's a, it's a four-step pattern of rebellion and then reckoning, remorse, and rescue. Okay, so let's start with the first step. The pattern begins with rebellion. So here the Israelites are. They're living in this nation. They're surrounded by those who don't worship God but worship all these man-made gods, these these things which they hope if they do them, there'll be sort of a karmic response to their actions and things will turn out well. So you worship a God that you believe it controls the sun and rain, which they hope that there'll be the right amount of sunshine and rain so that your crops will grow. This is their life. We're, we're trying to figure out how to manipulate things and we're going to worship these things in order to get what we think we need. And so this is happening all around them. And so this is, this is what they start to do. 
Like they see their neighbor and they're like, oh, maybe, well, maybe I'll do that. And it, like no one likes to be weird or stand out. And so over time, they start to worship these false gods. They're a lot like Judah. Remember Judah from two weeks ago who moves and lives with the Canaanites and he simply starts to become a Canaanite, just like those around him? And though God had commanded his people, he's like, I want you to live in a distinct way because here's what I want people around you to see, that there is a true God. A true God who doesn't operate on these sort of karmic principles, a true God of grace and mercy and kindness, who's made a way for you to know him, who wants to bless his people. We want you to show this by living distinctly. They don't. They rebel. And they conform more and more to the sinful lifestyle of the neighbors around them. We see this described in chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. It says that whole generation, this is with Joshua, was also gathered to their ancestors. Then after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. And so the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals, that's a type of false god, and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the one who brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples. They bowed down to them, and they angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreths. Okay, so the first step is rebellion. The next step in the pattern is reckoning, right? Actions have consequences. As God says, what you sow, you reap. And so the law of Moses is clear. If you rebel, there'll be punishment. Disobedience has a price. And so the way God settles this account is he brings in these nations and they, and they defeat Israel and they carry them into slavery. And so they were used to God going before them into battle, but now God actually brings the battle to them and victory is swallowed in defeat because of their rebellion. We see this in verse 14. It says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel because of their rebellion and disobedience and idolatry. So he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. So here's the third step in the pattern. We can probably guess what it is. It's remorse. Right? Because all of a sudden you're living in slavery and you're thinking like, how do we get here? In fact, maybe you're starting to remember some of those stories that you heard when you were a kid growing up and you're like, wait a sec, I thought, I thought God had brought our, our ancestors out of Egypt so that we would have this land and we would receive his blessing. Like, what's going on? And you, you start to feel some remorse about what brought you to this point. Now, I wouldn't call this repentance, because even though they cry out to God for help, it seems like their issue is far more the, their circumstances than their sin. But God is kind, and so the final step in the pattern is rescue. God hears their pleas for help. He remembers the promises he makes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to Moses and to Joshua. And so he raises up a deliverer, which we call a judge. So this is where we find the stories that we love in the book of Judges. So if you grew up and going to church, these were the, the best stories were in the book of Judges, right? Stories about Samson, right? Who, let's be honest, we all picture him as Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like that's Samson. And with these stories, these amazing stories, they reveal the depth of God's mercy and kindness to sinful people and his power that nothing can stop what God chooses to do. So verse 16 describes it in a single verse. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. Okay, so here you have it. You have rebellion, you have reckoning, remorse, rescue. Now, I said this is a pattern because it doesn't happen once. It's sort of this cycle which just happens over and over. Because as soon as they're rescued, as soon as they're delivered, all of a sudden they start to look at those gods again and say like, huh, well, like maybe we should do that. Verse 17 says, but they did not listen to their judges. 
Instead, they, look at this term, prostituted themselves with other gods. They gave themselves fully to these other gods, bowing down to them, living for them. They, they quickly turned away from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. And so this pattern begins in Judges chapter 3, and it lasts until Judges chapter 16. So in these chapters, we actually find the names of 13 different judges, and we can assume there probably were some others that aren't even mentioned, but five of them are highlighted in great detail. So Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And I think those five are highlighted because God is showing how he uses very unlikely people to to rescue his people so that we'll get this idea that like the power of God is not displayed in human strength, but through human weakness. So each one of these is unlikely. One of them, Ehud, is left-handed, which we don't really think much about that. Like I know all of us right-handers sort of look strangely at left-handers, but we don't like think it's anything real strange. Well, in this time, in these cultures, a lot of times this was looked at like what's wrong with them. Like at, at times in history, they were considered witches, because they were left-handed. So like, this is not a person you'd expect, is the idea. And yet God uses him to deliver. Deborah's a woman, right? A, a woman in this culture doesn't raise an army and lead an army and deliver them. That's just not happens, yet God uses Deborah. Gideon, the whole point about Gideon's story is that like, he's in a tribe of nobodies, in a family of nobodies, and he's like the nobody of the nobodies. Like you can't get lower on the nobody pecking order than Gideon. Jephthah. He's the son of a prostitute. And Samson, I mean, it's even hard to encapsulate Samson's issues, right? He's a mess. He's just driven by his passions. His greatest moment of victory comes in his death. But it's through these weak men and women that God chooses to rescue his people. But in spite of God delivering them over and over and over, they refuse to obey. And so as the book gets to the end of Judges, we find this one refrain that's repeated four times after the stories of the Judges. Here's the first time, Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Okay, so at one point in Israel's history, the standard for right, right, and wrong is the law of God, right? We, we see what God says, and this is how we order our lives, but it says that's not the case. What was once black and white is now everything's gray. It's as if they took the word of God and they sort of tossed it in the dumpster and said, you know what, we'll just figure it out on our own. Each man sort of a law to themselves. So what could possibly break this vicious pattern of rebellion? Well, it says in those days there was no king in Israel. It's anticipating a king in Israel, a coming king who leads the nation back to God. We know this from what we've already learned, right? It's a king from the line or the tribe of Judah who will reign, who will restore the worship of God and obedience to the law of God that he'll rule and reign under the kingship of God himself. And so this, this pattern of rebellion, what it does is exposes Israel's need for a king after God's own heart. And so the book of Judges, as you read it, what it's, what it's doing is it's, it's supposed to be building in the reader this anticipation like, 
Like, when will this end? And how will this end? And as you go on, you're like, oh, it's going to end when, when one like these judges, but so much better, comes. In a, in a real sense, it's just building upon that question that we said was raised in Genesis chapter 3. Like, who is the son who will come to restore everything that's been broken, who will crush evil and renew this creation? And it says, well, he's a king and he's coming and we so desperately need him. So now let's turn to the book of Ruth. Okay, so the book of Ruth is set during this time of national failure. So the first phrase is, right, during the time of the judges. So we get a big picture of what's going on. The next phrase in Ruth 1, verse 1, brings that failure home to one family in a very powerful way. So it says this, there was a famine in the land. So God had warned his people that one of the consequences of their disobedience was famine. So as they prepared to enter this land, here's what God promised them. This is a wonderful promise. He says this in Leviticus, if you follow my statutes and you faithfully observe my commands. So if you do what I say, God says, I will give you rain at the right time. The land will yield its produce and the trees of the, of the field will bear their fruit. Okay, so here Israel is during the time of Ruth when it opens and there's no rain, right? And the land isn't bearing any, any produce and the trees are all barren. So why? Okay, well, God told them why. Because they were living in rebellion and disobedience to him. And so the story of Ruth opens in a time of a national failure, but it continues with a family's failure. Elimelech. He's an Israelite man from the tribe of Judah. He decides to leave his home in Bethlehem and, and journey to Moab because he's heard there's food there. They get to, he gets to Moab and his two sons marry Moabite women. And before either have children, Elimelech and both his sons die. Okay, now I know you guys listen well. So that should sound familiar to you from the past couple weeks, Right? Right? This story should remind you of a story we studied a couple weeks ago about a man named Judah. Because Elimelech sounds a lot like Judah. Because if you remember, Judah, after selling his brother into slavery, what's he do? It says he, he goes and he lives among the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman. And then he, not he, but his two oldest sons die without leaving an heir. And so what the authors try and get us to do is understand Elimelech his actions as being similar to Judah's actions, that he is, he is living in disobedience and rebellion to God in these decisions he makes. Now, if you remember from Judah's life, we saw how his father and grandfather both inst- were both instructed not to marry a Canaanite woman. This had nothing to do with ethnicity. They were instructed not to marry a Canaanite woman because these women would have been raised in idolatry and they would turn the hearts of their husbands after these false gods. But Judah, he, he, he ignores that. He marries a Canaanite woman. What happens? Well, exactly what he was warned about. Like he stops worshiping God and he starts worshiping all these false gods, these gods that cannot save. And so it's so bad that his two sons were, tell, were told are evil man. God kills them. And so in the story of Judah, what we saw was this example of someone who, who turns his back on God, rejects his family, and he chooses instead to make a new family with those who worship false gods. Okay, Elimelech has done the exact same thing. Like, that's what we need to see. He's rejected Israel. He's rejected his kinsmen. He's joined with Moab, who are the sworn enemies of the people of God. It was Moab that that tried to curse Israel when they were walking through the wilderness. In fact, they hired a prophet named Balaam. Didn't work out well for Balaam, if you know that story. But they hired a prophet named Balaam to curse them. 
And as a result of this, God says, like, I will destroy Moab, and Moabites are forbidden to worship in my temple. So this is where Elimelech goes. Now, I think what Elimelech does is something we can all identify with. When times get tough, he flees. He takes off. So instead of staying and helping those in need, instead of renewing his commitment to his community, think about what he could have done. He and his two sons in a land where people are struggling, he could have served. He could have helped. He could have blessed his neighbors. Instead, he bails and he looks for a better opportunity. Like we see this all around us and let's be honest, this temptation is inside us. When it gets hard, we want to bolt. But brothers and sisters, we are covenant people. God has brought us into an everlasting covenant of blessing through Jesus Christ. And this should be reflected in the way we keep our covenants. The steadfast love of God for us should be seen in our steadfast love for each other. God doesn't jettison us when we fail him. And so we shouldn't jettison others when they fail us. Like this is why we work hard, right, as Christians, to deal with problems in our marriage. We don't get a divorce because it's tough or because we have differences. We keep our covenants. Now, I know there are times when others break the covenant and leave us, but, but we value the marriage covenant. We also value our membership covenant at church. And when you joined, here's what you did. You made a promise, not to me as an elder, but to other members. And you said, here's the promise. I will walk with you through difficulty. I will walk with you and help you follow Jesus Christ when life gets tough. And so we don't run because of conflict. We don't cast relationships to the side because of a decision we don't like. We aren't like Black Friday shoppers, already always looking for new experiences and better deals. We are covenant people. We make covenants and we keep covenants, even when keeping, especially when keeping them is hard. So the story of Ruth opens in a time of tremendous national failure and it zooms in on this family who is no longer living in Israel. They're living with the Canaanites. They've made poor decisions. They've suffered severe consequences. But in the midst of all this failure, we find God's grace. We get the first hint of grace in verse 6. As news reaches Naomi that the famine has ended in Israel, and so she begins the journey home. Her two widowed daughters-in-law are traveling with her. Verse 7 says, She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. Naomi's just being honest with these two women. I have nothing to offer you. Like, I don't have a home back in Bethlehem. Like, we, we all left. We uprooted. Like, they weren't snowbirds. They weren't going back to anywhere. She's like, I have, no, I have no prospects either for you. Like, I have nothing to offer you. No means of support. So go back to your parents' home, and there they'll, they'll find you a new husband, and that husband will take care of you. But verse 10 says, no, these, these women insist we're going to go with you. And so Naomi then lays out the helplessness of her situation and, and by extension, theirs. Verse 11, she says, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on. 
For I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons. Would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now again, we see the similarities between this story and the story of Judah and Tamar because what Naomi is referring to or making allusion to is the law of leveret marriage. We we talked about this two weeks ago. This is where a brother marries his widowed sister-in-law to raise up a son to carry on his brother's line. And this is what she's saying. Like, there are no more brothers. One of her daughters-in-law, Orpah, she decides to return home, but the other Ruth refuses to return home. She will continue with Naomi no matter the difficulty. And she affirms her commitment to Naomi in one one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture. I think in all the Bible. She says in verse 16, Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Not only does Ruth's story remind us of Tamar's story, But it also reminds us of Rahab's story. Because Ruth, like Rahab, was a Canaanite woman with no hope, no future, until she makes this declaration of faith in Israel's God. I think it's quite remarkable that two of the clearest statements of faith in all the Bible come from Rahab and Ruth. These are women who did not grow up going to temple. They did not grow up worshiping God, reading the Old Testament. Yet God, in His grace, opens their eyes, and they make these beautiful statements of allegiance to God. So Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. This is where Naomi's from. Now the women there see here, it's been a decade. They get excited and they ask, is it really you, Naomi? Naomi responds with a pretty shocking statement in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That that word means bitter. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi means pleasant. It's a nice name. And here's what Naomi says, but it's a lie. My life is not pleasant. Call me bitter, because my life is bitter. Now, I think we can understand why Naomi is struggling with bitterness. Like her life has been full of suffering. She left and lost her family because her husband made the decision to travel to a different place looking for food. There she lost her husband and two sons to her early death. And now as she looks to the future, all she can see is more suffering. And so the weight of her suffering is driving her to despair and her despair is turning to bitterness. I think it's important for us to learn just a couple lessons about bitterness from Naomi's example here. First is that bitterness not only hurts us, but it hurts others. See, when Naomi urged her daughters-in-law to return to their parents' home, she understood this, that she was actually urging them to return to false worship. Because she says in verse 15 to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods Follow her. So the Moabite worship involved prostitution for women, particularly women without husbands. 
and child sacrifice. How in the world can Naomi, who knows the true God, how in the world can she encourage these women to go back to that? And the answer is bitterness. Bitterness causes us to get so wrapped up in our own problems that we no longer notice or care about the problems of others. Augustine once described bitterness as drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I think it's a great description of bitterness. It actually hurts us. But I I don't think it was far enough because bitterness always hurts innocent people around. Bitterness is more like a carbon monoxide leak because it just slowly harms everyone in the house. But second, bitterness lies about the past and the future. It lies about the past and future. Because here's what Naomi says. I left Israel full and I came back empty. And the author of Ruth wants us to see that's not true. Because the very first verse of Ruth is that they left because of famine. What's a famine? It's an empty land, right? It's empty tables. It's empty cupboards. It's emptiness. And the last verse of Ruth 1 is this. And they returned to Bethlehem during the barley harvest. There's only a harvest if there's food, right? You don't have a harvest. If there's nothing, there's no harvest during famine time. There's nothing to harvest. And so the author of Ruth is saying, no, no, no. She actually left empty and came back full. Now, of course, you'd say, well, I don't think she was talking about food. She left with a husband and two sons, and she comes back with a childless widowed daughter-in-law who happens to be a Moab, uh, from Moab, like the, the sworn enemy of Israel. But this is where bitterness lied about the future. Naomi thinks she is nothing, but what she has in Ruth is far more than she realizes. In Ruth, she has a future beyond her own expectation. We will learn more about Ruth next week. But by the end of her story, the women of Bethlehem will say to Naomi, it's a quote, your daughter-in-law is better to you than seven sons. So she leaves with two rebellious sons. She returns with one faith-filled daughter-in-law who's better than seven sons. In her bitterness, she couldn't see what God would do about her future. Of course, her future was even better than she realized because from Ruth would come a son who would have a son and the generations would continue until a far distant son was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, is the place where Jesus Christ the bread of life would be born. He would come into a starving world, a world in the midst of famine, and he would bring hope and life and a future. From Ruth would come the Messiah who would then be broken so that we could be healed. I mean, the inclusion of a Moabite woman in the line of the Messiah. If we don't get this, When you think about this, the inclusion of a Moabite woman in the line of the Messiah, here's what it assures us, that the bread of life is for all people in all places. That there's no one in the most remote place on earth, no one who's done something so terrible that if they eat of the bread of the life, won't be saved. That's what the inclusion of Ruth is telling us. But in Naomi's bitterness, she misses the grace of God who is walking and talking right by her. She misses God's kindness to her in this person of Ruth, that he has not abandoned her at all, 
that he has given her a gift far beyond what she lost. You'll notice that Naomi never doubts God's existence. Nor does she doubt that God is sovereign over all things. She is clear on both of those truths. Here's what she doubts. That God is gracious and kind. What about you? Do you see God's grace and kindness to you? Or are you bitter over loss? Bitter over failure in your life? Are you struggling with resentment over how you think God has treated you? Maybe like Naomi, it started with grief. And that grief turned to despair and that despair is turning to bitterness. Listen, if you're struggling with bitterness, I want you to do two things. First, talk to other people. Talk to other people. Gospel community is powerful medicine to arrest and reverse the effects of bitterness. Because... As Naomi's story ends in chapter 4, it is the other women of Bethlehem who come to her and they remind her of God's grace and they help her return from Mara, bitterness to Naomi Pleasant. Like talk to your community group. Reach out to an older man or woman who has suffered. Email an elder. Like don't do this alone. Help. Let us, as your brothers and sisters, help you deal with grief and suffering so it doesn't turn into bitterness. Second, rehearse the truth about your past and future. Rehearse the truth about your past and future. So if you're a Christian, this is true, undeniably true. Your past was bitter, your future is pleasant. Like that is an undeniable truth for the Christian. Your past was bitter. Your future is pleasant, but here's what bitterness says. It says that's not true. It's the opposite. Bitterness says, look back there. Things were so good. Things were so good in Egypt. Things were so good in Canaan. Things were so good. Look back there. Now all you've got ahead of you is bitterness. Christian, that's a lie. It's a lie. Think about what we've studied in Romans 8. What is your future? I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that has been revealed. All creation is awaiting for the revelation of the sons of God. That's you and me. That creation is hoping and longing for that day when they will enter the glorious freedom of God's children. Your future is so much better than you can imagine. So any loss in the past will be multiplied a million times in the future when Jesus returns. Don't believe the lie. We need to each day rehearse this truth. This is how we don't believe the lies. This is why you read your Bible. You don't read your Bibles to check off some box. You don't read your Bible because then God will be like, okay, I'll be nice to them today. That's not how it works. Here's how you read your Bible because you're, you're hearing lies and you're telling lies. Your soul's telling you lies. Your past was better. Your future's uncertain. You read the Bible to be like, no, that's wrong. I will say to my soul, soul, hope in God. This is why you come on Sundays. You need it. You need to take this supper each Sunday. And you need to eat this bread. And it is, it's small and it's sweet tasting. But it tells you this, that one day you will feast in the presence of Jesus. You need to drink this cup 
And he'd say, like, my future is glorious and secure in Christ. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we take this, we think of his advent, his first advent, his second advent, his first coming, his soon return. So we don't believe the lie that our past was glorious and our future is uncertain. No, Christian. No. You need to speak the truth to your soul about your sinful, forgiven past and your glorious, secure future. So a few years ago, I read an article about how prestigious colleges will spend millions of dollars every year trying to recruit students just so they can, just so they can reject them. Because the harder it is for students to get into a college, the more exclusive the college appears. So the more students you can convince to apply and be rejected, the better you look. I mean, that's ridiculous. We sometimes view God's kingdom like those prestigious colleges. We think only the best and brightest get in. That only those who achieve the most, get the best grades, have the right connections, will be accepted. If the currency for acceptance to the Ivy Leagues is success, then the currency for acceptance to God's kingdom is failure. Only those who realize they shouldn't be allowed in are able to come. Okay, here's the great news. Most of us feel like failures, right? Most of us feel like failures. If you're a parent, I know you do. If you've been married for any length of time, then you have experienced failure over and over. You know how often you failed your husband or wife. I know there are students here that are terrified about failing a class. There are graduates who are terrified that they have, they've got this debt, they've spent all this time, and now there are no jobs. I know there are people getting older. Every morning they feel this body they're in fail. Like we all know failure and we're all scared of it. But in our failure, we find hope. Because your failure is the first step to the kingdom of God. Only those who know they have failed will recognize and receive God's grace. So like Naomi, your failure and others' failure that affects you It can drive you either to resentment or to healing, to bitterness or to faith in God. The grace of God not only comes to those who failed, but it's our moments of failure that we most clearly see his grace. So brothers and sisters, let's find hope in his grace, not our success this Advent season. Father, we need your help. All we bring is failure. And sometimes we think it's our failure that disqualifies us from your grace when it's our failure that actually qualifies us. That your grace only comes to those who see their failure, who admit their failure, who are desperate for your help. And so we come as your people affirming, even in this bread and this cup, that it is our failure which led to Christ's sacrifice, but it's his grace which redeems our failures. I pray right now for anyone who's struggling with despair or grief or bitterness. May they find hope. May they find healing 
in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.